Well, good morning. Yes, I'm Pastor Ed Sutter, one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you. We are looking at Mark 14, 53 to 72. Mark 14, 53 to 72. I'm going to read this passage, and as I read it, I want you to be aware that there are really two trials going on in this passage. And they are strategically written in this fashion, almost in a parallel sense, to get our attention. I think it raises uh, in our consciousness the fact that uh, Mark has interwoven these uh, to get our attention. One is the trial of Jesus Christ, and the other I refer to as the trial of Peter. Some will just call it the denial of Peter, Peter's denial. So we'll look at this. This morning we're going to focus... We're going to focus on uh, Peter's trial, but we'll conclude by looking at the significance of why these two are integrated in the fashion that we find them. So, uh, Luke 14, beginning with verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely falsely against him, for their statements did not agree. Verse 57, then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build up another. Not made by man, not made by man, period. Yet even their testimonies did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. Verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were that Nazarene, Jesus said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you are talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again, To those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, 
Surely you are one, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know this man that you are talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. A novelist by the name of James Lane Allen coined these words, Trials do not build character, they reveal it. Now, I think we could probably argue whether trials do build character or not, but that's not my point this morning. I think uh, two points that we would all agree on. One is, in this life, it's inevitable that you will have trials. And the second thing, trials will reveal character. There will be trials in life, and they do reveal character. Uh, A preacher in London in the 1800s that is often repeated is Charles Spurgeon. And he said the same thing in these words, trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we are made of. Trials, your trials, dig up the soils of your life, dig up uh, pressure on your values and your beliefs, and it allows them, if the trial is of such a nature of severity, to percolate up to the surface and all of a sudden reveal things that perhaps you uh, would prefer not to see. There are two trials in our passage today. There is uh, Jesus Christ. He's on trial in a courtroom. Peter is on trial in a courtyard. And today we are going to focus on Peter's trial. Peter's trial digs up the soil of his own life. And it reveals something to him that he was not as fully aware of up until this encounter that we see here in Mark 14. And as I rehearse this trial, I want you to be thinking, like Peter, how do you encounter your trials? Because the same question we, uh, that Peter has to answer, we have to answer. Am I willing to allow the trials in my life to reveal the true character that is within me? Will I engage welcome trials to serve in that role to reveal truth about my own self and what I'm made of? Three things uh, as we go through this passage that I want us to uh, kind of follow through. One is, first, I'm going to talk about Peter's trial and make some observations about Peter's trial. And then secondly, what has been revealed? The character in Peter that is revealed. And lastly, we're going to talk about Peter changes. Peter changes, you can change. If the trials that you encounter reveal something 
just like Peter, you can change. You can address that. So three observations I want to make here about the trial of Peter. The first one is this trial really starts. It's Peter's own doing. He, in some ways, brought it on himself. Last week, Mark 14, verse um, 29. Uh, Pastor Derek did a great job on this passage of Scripture. Look at it. Um, Mark 14, 29. Peter declared, you know, first he's telling them that his time is coming. It's close. He's going to give his life. And Peter won't have any of that. And Peter makes this declaration. Even if all fall away, and he's probably looking around the room and saying, hey, even if Matthew and John and Philip and Nathaniel, even if all of those fall away, Lord, I will not fall away. He's setting the bar quite high for himself. Uh, he is putting himself in position to be tried. Peter, what you're declaring here, is this really true about you? Because I know... Peter, in the four walls of our minds, we can say things that we hope are true, we may think they are true, but boy, when trials come, it may surprise us what is really true and is revealed to us. See, if we have exaggerated thoughts about ourselves... It creates trials. If you have exaggerated thoughts about yourself, and out of that you have to compare yourself to others, you are fertile for trials. And those trials will reveal something about you. Rather than live life, You have to work at life. And now all of a sudden, everything can become a trial. Typically, you know, I'm sure here, Peter, when he made these words, the the, uh, declaration in Mark 14, 29, he thought they were true about himself. But typically, in in a trial, uh, when the tension starts to mount, we just have a gut reaction. We sometimes just kick in instantaneously. And we see here, Peter, it's just like us with this, what Pastor Derek said, this bravado, this impulsive bravado, just comes out with that great declaration in 1429. Others will, but not I. Peter's trial reveals that his words in 1429 were not fully true. Sure, there was parts of it that were true. I, you'll hear me say that I think Peter was a noble, a courageous man. But interwoven within him, he was a mixed bag. And God still had this purifying work that He wanted to do. That's God's mission, that we would grow and become followers of Jesus Christ because He's preparing us for heaven. And so, 
Peter, you think it's true, but I want to reveal something to you, Peter. This is not to say by any means that Peter was a coward. This is not to say he was a poor disciple. This is not to say he did not love Jesus. Not at all. Look at verse 54, 1454. Two simple words. And I just have the utmost admiration. This guy had guts. He had more intestinal fortitude than I think I would have. Peter followed. Peter, for whatever reason, whatever his motive was, he followed. He went into the eye of that hostility and anger. He went into the courtyard of the high priest where the tension was so thick. It was like he was going into the path of an F5 hurricane or tornado, knowing that he was in the pathway. Granted, it was at a distance, but how many of you would have gone to a bunker and settled down and not been anywhere in proximity that could have been accused or been put on trial? Peter follows. The second thing I want you to observe with me about this trial, it it happens in the courtyard. There in verse 66, it tells us, well, Peter was below in the courtyard. The courtyard. See, Jesus Christ's trial happens in the formality of a courtroom. The chief priests, the high priests, the elders, the teachers of the law. Peter's trial is not in a formal courtroom. But here... Peter's going to be asked questions. Not on a witness stand, but in a courtyard. You know, Peter was just trying to hang out. Not be noticed in the courtyard. He wasn't looking for a trial. The trial found him in the courtyard. Have you ever noticed during your everyday life, Life in the courtyard. We're not talking about the formality of a courtroom. Life in the courtyard, the everyday life, how trials come your way. It's everyday trials. The everyday trials. The trials that are kind of unexpected. That have great potential to reveal the character and the truth about yourself. Peter's trial was initiated by a servant's girl, a servant of the chief priest. And she just asked a simple yes or no question. It just needs a yes or no answer. Now the third observation I want us to make is to notice how in this trial, in the courtroom, how the stress or tension on this trial gets ramped up. It increases. Um... And largely because of Peter's mishandling of the trial. So the first thing, the the gal in verse 66, notice there, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant's girls of the high priest came by. 
And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. But it made him a little nervous, just a little nervous, and so he uh, walks away and goes into the entryway. He dodged a bullet. But then we have a second question. The servant girl in verse 69, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again, and notice how it gets ramped up here. It's not just her talking to Peter, but now she's going to make sure others hear this accusation. This fella, she says again to those standing around, this fella is one of them. And again, he denies it. Notice how the stress of the trial now, it picks up here in verse 69 where it really reaches a crescendo to the climax, the pinnacle of stress, the trial, because he's not dealing with it in a healthy manner by admitting the truth. The stress and pressure, and now he becomes pretty desperate. And so in 69, we read that after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, so it gets ramped up again, it's not just the girl to Peter, it's not just saying it in front of others so they could hear, but now there are a lot of other voices uh, uh, bringing this accusation to Peter. Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Now, his back's against the wall. Uh, this trial, uh, the, the stress of it is just overwhelming. And have you noticed when those trials get to that proportion, what happens to your brain? What happens to your thoughts? The things that can come out may surprise you. The words that may come out may surprise you. Uh, look what Peter does. When that is happening... We see his character. This is the second thing I want us to do. How his character here is revealed. He began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Now again, Peter's not a bad guy because I can have such stress that if I told you some of the I thought and words hopefully where nobody can hear you would be taken back so I you know I'm just thankful that this is in here to communicate even somebody with the stature of Peter has the same challenge that I do when the stress and trials of life are that intense this is so intense here, uh, Peter. It says that he began to call down curses on himself. Now, a lot of people will say, uh, you know, uh, the translations are just being nice. This word for curses is anathema. It means to shun or that you detest. 
he began to call down curses. The words himself are not in the Greek. It's not in there. A lot of translations, I don't know about yours, they won't put himself, they will just say he called down curses and leave it at that. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, so I'm not a Greek scholar. But my research in preparation told me that the Greek structure here is that this is a personal verb. It's a personal anathema. He's anathematizing something or a person from the construction here. And so that's why a lot of them put himself. But there is evidence among some that believe it's Jesus Christ. That things can get so bad, trials can get so ugly, that Peter, Peter, See, that's probably hard for us to fathom. How could that be true? I mean, we're shocked maybe to even entertain that idea about Peter. Maybe there are some things we shouldn't be so shocked to allow God, during times of trial, to reveal about our own selves that may not be any more pure. Peter's trial is bringing to the surface some thinking that is so surprising to him, so foul that it surprises him, that there is this residue within him. And again, I feel this, I, I need to constantly remind, uh, he's, it, it, we're not all one way or the other. We are a mixed bag. But these seeds, this residue, a weaknesses, failure, sin of our character are interwoven in there. And God's in the process of bringing those to the surface, revealing them so that you can be pure. And so, we read about this rooster. The rooster gets all the credit here. Yeah, verse 72. Let's look here. Really, it's just a trigger. You know, certainly God foretold that, you know, about this rooster. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. See, then somehow something cracked through. Peter fabricated uh, this false identity that we saw announced in 1429. This bravado, this uh, uh, I can do anything. Um, I won't be like all of the others. I will be different. I will be greater. And now, something has cracked through that false identity, that denial, that illusion, and he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed. Uh, it's understandable why somebody would not want trials to reveal something about their character because it can be so overwhelming. A rooster crowing catches his attention.
it goes on to tell us, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And uh, you know, I, I think these are great words. This shows you, I think, um, uh, the, the reality is getting through because he's at a loss for words. He breaks down and weeps. Uh, you, you know, it, it's hard to, even as I say that, you know, I, I say he breaks down and weeps in such a dignified male, uh, uh, American, uh, uh, in control way. He breaks down and weeps. Uh, um, far more dramatic. This weeping is the same word used for Mary when she goes back to the tomb. You know, they crucified her Savior, Jesus Christ. They'd gone through that gut-wrenching of uh, seeing Him die. She goes to the tomb, devastated with grief, and the tomb's open, and it's empty. She immediately thinks that somebody has stolen the body of Jesus, compounding the intensity of the grief and all the motions, the distress. And it says, she weeps. And the weeping is such of a magnitude uh, that she doesn't even recognize that Jesus is there. Peter is broken down with the reality of what is true about himself. His trial has revealed something. But he changes. See, that's the glory of this whole thing. That's God's way. Is He's not done. He can turn trials if we have the courage to allow those trials to rise to the surface and reveal something to change us, to address those things. Peter grows in a, as an authentic, genuine follower of Jesus Christ. The writer, Mark, of this Gospel, the Gospel of Mark that we're studying, does not self-identify him in the text. It doesn't start out by saying, I, Mark, have written this. We gather that certainly from tradition, and there's a lot of weight of tradition that tags Mark as the author. Certainly the early church unanimously testified that Mark was indeed the author. Also, the writings of one of the earliest uh, Christian historians, Papias, credits Mark as the writer of this. And so we conclude that, and we take that as John Mark of the New Testament is the author of this book. But what's significant about that is that John Mark knew Peter. In Acts 12, after Peter gets out of prison, this is up ahead, this is still in the future of this, when he gets out of prison, he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of Mark. Peter had a relationship with the author of this letter that we call Mark. 
He had such a significant relationship with Mark that in 1 Peter 5.13, he calls him my dear son. Mark has become like a dear son to me. It is believed that Mark has written this just like Luke from eyewitness account, apostles who walked with Jesus Christ. We believe in inspiration, that it's a two-way street, that God inspires, but He uses human agents to bring this all together. And so part of the human part is eyewitnesses. Those who saw firsthand. Uh, other characteristics of this Gospel that indicates uh, that Peter and a lot of Mark's writings come a result of Peter's words to him is the amount of times Peter appears in the Gospel of Mark. It's proportionately greater than the other Gospels. And so Peter is relaying these things as Mark, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is dictating and writing. We also see evidence of this, and some would uh, point to things like this in the Gospel of Mark as the authenticity of all of Scripture in verse 66. Just that little phrase, while Peter was below in the courtyard. While Peter was below in the courtyard. What, what's significant about that, Lord? Why is that in there? Eyewitnesses. They are just telling you the way it was. The way it was. Some of the detail that we see here is indicative of somebody who was indeed at the scene and they are verbatim repeating the way it was. But the, the reason this is so significant and is um, evidence that Peter changes, he's self-reporting. He is communicating about his denial himself with his words to Mark to write down so that you and I can read and benefit from it. This man back in 1429 that had this uh, um, attitude, this personality of bravado, all of a sudden reveals the truth. What would you do? People who have a, a personality bent on bravado or, or uh, uh, ego or, or pride are not apt to communicate their weaknesses and failures. Peter goes from being a false witness in the courtroom to being a bold, courageous witness when interviewed for our benefit to Mark. Peter changes. He goes from being impulsive, driven, uh, full of uh, bravado, to becoming a humble, sincere follower of Jesus Christ. He's not perfect. Not perfect but he becomes authentic. He becomes genuine. Peter goes from denying Jesus Christ in the courtyard 
to sacrificing his life, being killed, martyred, which is the idea of witness, the word martyr is witness, that Jesus Christ, I mean, Peter becomes a true witness to Jesus Christ, even at the expense of his own life. One of the um, bishops in the early church has written Clement that Peter died by way of crucifixion, just like Jesus Christ. And we see the words that he, because of his reverence and uh, respect for Jesus Christ, asked to be crucified with his head down because he was not worthy to be crucified in the same way. So, in conclusion, there are two trials here in Mark 14, 53 to 72. Two trials that are kind of intertwined and they're running parallel. And I want us to see this chart and for us to take a look at it. Um, there we go. There we go. Jesus Christ. Two trials. The trial in of Jesus Christ in the courtroom, the trial of Peter in the courtyard. Jesus Christ was charged and questioned. Peter was charged and questioned. Jesus Christ answered truthfully. Peter answered falsely. Jesus Christ was condemned and killed. Peter, who answered falsely, was not condemned and lived. I like the, the saying, Jesus Christ was unlawfully condemned and killed in order that we, or Peter, who was guilty, could go free. This is a concept we have we, in theology which is just really a, a biblical understanding of God put into a, a rational understanding we call substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. And it just means that Jesus stood in the courtroom for us. Literally. We're not talking about just figuratively, metaphorically. We're not just talking about ideally. He stood in the courtroom for us. Jesus Christ was condemned for us. Jesus Christ died for us so that we who are guilty can go free. It's a substitute. A literal substitute. I like how uh, Keller words this uh, understanding and appreciation. I think the significance of it being a substitute is, well, one, we need a Savior. We don't just need a teacher to tell us how to save yourself. We need someone to do it for us. Imagine that your house was burning down, but your whole family had escaped. And I said to you, let me show you how much I love you, and I ran into the house and died. What a tragic and pointless waste of a life you would probably think. But now imagine that your house was on fire and one of your children was still in there and I said to you, let me show you how much I love you. 
ran into the flames and saved your child, but perished myself. You would think, look at how much that man loved us. A substitute. Somebody to do the work that we could not do for ourselves. This is what sets Christianity apart. We don't have a teacher to just teach us the way. We don't have a person to just tell us how to save yourself. We have somebody who actually comes into our mess and saves us. That's why we call Him a Savior. More than rabbi. More than teacher. He's a Savior. Well, Luke has a little bit more. Yeah, I'm trying to see this, the, the time there with the lights coming at me, so that's if I look a little strange. Luke 22, uh, 31 to 32. Um, same encounter before the rooster crow, before the courtyard trial. This is prophetic in anticipation of that coming that Peter was going to deny him. And Luke gives us a little bit more information, a little bit more window on what's happening here in our passage of Mark 14. Luke 22, 31-32. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus Christ is telling Peter here, Peter, this is possible. Trials are going to reveal something about you. You're going to have the courage to take a look at that and change. Because I have prayed for you. I have prayed. That word prayer means intercede. I have advocated for you. I have represented you. I have stood in the courtroom innocent, but took the guilty plea and was killed so that you can go free. And Peter, you are going to rebound from this and turn it into something glorious. You will strengthen your brothers. That same opportunity invitations for us. Peter, you're going to fail. But take hold. Allow your trials to reveal the truth about yourself. Because Jesus Christ intercedes for you. Jesus Christ is your advocate. It's not how well you do it. It's not being perfect. It's not being better than. It's because you are clothed in Jesus Christ. You allow Jesus Christ to be your substitute in that court. The question is, will you receive Jesus Christ as your substitute? You don't have to. If you receive Jesus Christ as your substitute and now He's advocating for you, you don't have to carry that load of guilt for those wrongdoings. You don't have to worry about the rejection and criticism of others. 
Because Jesus Christ tells you, I will be a true witness. I will not deny you. Trials teach us what we are, Spurgeon said. They dig up the soil and they let us see what we are made of. What do your trials teach you about yourself? What do your trials teach you about yourself? If you never responded to Jesus Christ as your substitute, your representative in that courtroom, if you're still relying on your own abilities, skills, intellect, uh, ingenuity, whatever you call it, uh, uh, kind of to get you through that courtroom, let's talk. Because things will come crashing down on you just like it did on Peter. There will come a day that you will realize, you know, your ingenuity, your skills, your personality, all of that leaves you up short because the crisis gets so big. Now's the time before those trials get ramped up to consider Jesus Christ as your substitute. So you don't have to work at life. You can live life. So you don't have to feel guilt. You can go free because of what Jesus Christ has done. Um, it'd be something that uh, I as a pastor, Pastor Derek, Debbie, elders, a lot of us would be glad to just help interact and help you uh, discern and, and gain clarity of what that means for you, your life, to consider Jesus Christ as your substitute. What do trials teach you about yourself if you are already a follower of Jesus Christ? Our mission here at Faith Free is not just to make converts of Jesus Christ. It's a great first step. Our, our goal is this journey, this becoming, this ongoing becoming a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And a major portion of of us being successful at this mission of helping people become genuine followers of Jesus Christ is to encourage them to seize these trials that come into their life. One of the most powerful teaching tools that God uses are trials. And so we want to position ourselves and you to where you can maximize these trials to allow things to be revealed so that you can enjoy uh, the fullness that Jesus Christ desires in a relationship with Him. And that's why we often say, don't try doing life alone. Because when trials come, it's good to verbalize. It's good to confess. Because it demands that our minds deal with it more truthfully. Let's pray. God, we don't like it, or at least I don't like it, trials. I certainly would not choose trials. But, as I already mentioned, Lord, and certainly from Your Scripture, they are inevitable. Now, James tells us, it seems far-fetched to count it all joy when you face trials.
God, help us to slow down, to seize them. To allow your spirit at the right time, whether it's a rooster crowing, whether it's a, a Christian friend, whether it's a word on the radio, God, to just uh, crack through the fissures of our life that don't want to admit. God, uh, Peter's done a great thing for us by revealing the truth about himself. I'm so thankful for his courage, his boldness. His failure in the courtyard does not define him. God, may we become people like that, that offers his cup of uh, fresh water, of truth, of authenticity, like Peter, to not just those within the body of Christ, but the world. Not perfect, but genuine. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.